Welcome to CME on ReachMD. The following activity, Advances in Severe Asthma, highlights from ACAAI 2019, is provided in partnership with Prova Education and is supported by an educational grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Before beginning this activity, please review the faculty disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Your faculty are Dr. Nicola A. Hanania and Dr. Reynold A. Panateri, Jr. Despite the availability of guidelines recommended stepwise treatment approaches, nearly half of all patients with asthma have poorly controlled or uncontrolled disease. Now, in large part, this is due to suboptimal guideline implementation, a lack of understanding of the pathophysiology of the type 2 inflammatory process underlying this disease and initiating patients on targeted therapies that can address this process. Now, recent advances in our understanding of the type 2 inflammatory process has led to improved control, particularly now, particularly for those patients with moderate to severe asthma who remain uncontrolled on current traditional therapies. This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Reynold A. Panetieri, Jr. Joining me to discuss these advances and data presented at the 2019 American College of Allergy, Asthma and Immunology Annual Meeting in Houston, is Dr. Nick Hania. Nick, welcome. Thank you very much, Ray. It's uh, good to talk to you. So the meeting was really exciting. Let's punctuate what we've learned in the next discussion. So to start us off, Nick, many of us are probably well familiar with Asthma Impairment and Risk Questionnaire, or the AIRQ, and Air Compass, tools used to identify patients with higher risk for uncontrolled asthma and to aid in shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is so important today when we have options. What we don't always know is the accuracy and the utility of the tool. Well, there's one abstract that assessed the tools. What did you think about it, Nick? Well, I agree with you, Ray. We have several questionnaires to assess asthma control and, and clinical practice. And the AirQ is a bit interesting because it targeted patients with uncontrolled disease and in, uh, it is a 10-item questionnaire. It is self-administered, and it really looks at the risks and impairment and risk in these patients with uncontrolled disease. And in this uh, particular poster that was presented at the college meeting, investigators looked at the utility and the patient's preference in using this type of questionnaire. This was tested in six sites, two allergy, two pulmonary, and two primary care sites. And the bottom line, the patient's from the patient's perspective, when they looked at their preference, this type of questionnaires is something that the patient preferred, and they thought that this questionnaire got them more communication with their physician about their disease. So I'm hoping that in, uh, in this type of questionnaire will be utilized more frequently, particularly in our practices where we see more severe patients and uncontrolled patients with asthma. So, Ray, let me ask you, there were several posters and abstracts regarding the burden of oral steroids and that touched based on that, that particular subject. As we know, it's a major issue in managing severe asthma. Can you 
maybe summarize some of these posters that looked at this? I would recall maybe three or four presentations focused on that particular topic. You're right, Nick. There was a cluster of abstracts around OCS burden, that is oral corticosteroid burden. I like to call out two of these patterns of systemic corticosteroid exposure for patients with persistent asthma, a U.S. administrative claim study. And another that really focused specifically on pediatrics and among children and adolescents, and that was adverse events associated with systemic corticosteroid use among children and adolescents with asthma. The first one I mentioned was from Kaiser Permanente. And pretty resoundingly, the data shows that we are using way too much oral corticosteroids. So it's the go-to drug for exacerbations. But when patients are having two to three exacerbations or two to three tapers a year, if you look at the OCS burden that's attendant with that, it's substantial. And the first paper and the first work really focused on the adult patient use. And again, we're using way too much oral corticosteroids. And the cost of that is astounding. You're seeing a fair amount of cost, mostly due to second adverse effects and systemic consequences. Now, in the second poster, the focus was really on children. This was a work looking at a large database. And again, what we find is the children or adolescents that were put on OCS and not maintenance, we're talking about frequent exacerbators, really experienced numerous adverse effects. That is very interesting, Ray. I think, you know, now that we have options to reduce the burden of oral steroids in patients with uncontrolled and severe disease, we should really try to capitalize on those options. I think those abstracts show really a couple of things. One is we utilize oral steroid more than what we think we do. And even short courses have tremendous burden on the patients. And so I think one has to be cognitive of this, especially if there are other options for managing these patients. For the next series of posters from the college meeting, Dr. Anaya, let's talk about the progress we've made with biologic therapies. You just mentioned, you know, the alternative to OCS is really biologics, right? There were some very interesting abstracts here. Why don't you help us walk through the couple that really impressed you on the focus of biologics in uncontrolled and severe asthma? Oh, sure, Ray. There were indeed several posters and uh, presentations on biologics and severe asthma, and it, it's amazing how the this area of uh, science is growing uh, fast. Uh, one of the posters that I was involved in, and actually it's a, it's a study looking at claims database from the United States, and we really wanted to know what sort of patients are usually started on biologics. And so we tagged on a large database that included more than 23 million patients' data. And we identified patients who were started initially on biologic, but were not on it two years before that. And we wanted to know what are the immediate reasons for them to be started on biologics. And obviously, not to our surprise that many of these patients had significant healthcare utilization, needed oral steroids. 56% of them had oral steroids at least once in the last two years before being prescribed a biologic. 
and 26% had emergency room visits. So, so I think we are utilizing biologics in the right way, right population. Basically, that study at least suggests that that these patients are sick, and you know, despite everything they're on, they needed something else. However, there were several abstracts that looked at sub-analysis of larger clinical trials that have already been published. Some of these abstracts looked at the anti-IL-4 receptor, dupilumab, and particularly one of them looked at whether IgE level per se at baseline predicts response to dupilumab in patients with uncontrolled severe asthma. And they looked at exacerbation. This was a part of a large study. And they mainly looked at the symptom control as well from the Quest study, which included a large number of patients with uncontrolled disease. Uh, and that, that showed dupilumab is efficacious in reducing exacerbation. But here in this analysis, they were interested in looking at asthma control in patients with different levels of baseline IgE, immunoglobulin E. They looked at patients with less than 100 100 to 50, and then more than 500. And the reason why, because IL-4 is an important cytokine, as you know, for IgE production. And so they wanted to know if the efficacy of this drug is more in one group versus the other. The bottom line, the symptom control of asthma was very similar in all these three groups of patients, no matter what their IgE level was at baseline. And another interesting uh, slide presentation on a study looking at also dupilumab in this large quest study, but particularly looking at those patients who were sensitized to fungus, mainly aspergillus. And so, as you know, ABPA, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, is a very important problem in subgroup of patients with asthma who tend to be oral steroid dependent and very hard to treat. And indeed, in the Quest study, there were patients who were sensitized to aspergillus and had high IgE and high blood EOs, basically have ABPA. And in this analysis, although the group is small, they they compared that with the larger group of patients in the study. And the bottom line, these patients had a similar response to dupilumab with reduction in exacerbation, improving improvement in lung function with dupilumab versus placebo over the course of the study, which is very reassuring that even in those sick patients who have sensitization to aspergillus, this drug would work. There were a couple of abstracts looking at other biologics targeting interleukin-5. As we know, interleukin-5, there are three drugs in the U.S. The study that I'm quoting actually was a sub-analysis of a large, two large studies looking at the benraluzumab, which is a, an anti-IL-5 receptor, and particularly looking at those patients uh, with uh, nasal polyps. We know from previous studies that uh, na presence of nasal polyps may be a good predictor of response to an anti-IL-5 agent. And here, benraluzumab was the drug that they looked at. And they were more interested to see if whether the patient had nasal polyps uh, removed or not removed, meaning having had surgery or not. But also, they looked at whether the subgroup of patients had aspirin sensitization or not, and whether their response to benraluzumab was different. 
Uh, and the bottom line, they also looked at IgE level in this analysis as well. And, and all these subgroups of patients had a good response in reduction, exacerbation, and improvement in symptoms, whether they had polypectomy in the past or not, and whether they had aspirin sensitization or not. So certainly giving us reassurance that these patients would respond to this anti-IL-5 receptor. In fact, now that we have these biologics approved and some of them for a long time, others for a shorter period of time, we are able to look at them in the real world scenario. And in fact, I was interested to see that at the college meeting, there were several presentation uh, on real world studies with these biologics and uh, that give us reassurance that they work, that they are safe. Maybe if you don't mind giving us uh, your take on some of these studies presented on the real-world use of these biologics in the large populations. So, Nick, it's interesting that when registration studies for a drug are put in the hands of the FDA, often the patients that get such therapies aren't really aligned with the way we typically will use these medicines in real life. So real life pragmatic studies are incredibly important in understanding who really benefits from these therapies. The first two were extensions of the Prospero study. Now this focused on amelizumab and asking really very, very focused questions on what about the numbers of specific allergens that a patient is sensitive to, are they predictors? Are they predictors of a response to omelizumab? Now we know total IgE is, is not really a great predictor, but in this paper, they addressed what about specific IgE from those with one or two up to maybe even four. And surprisingly, those patients who were placed on the omelizumab had equal benefit, equal benefit from omelizumab across the numbers of specific IgEs that were recognized. So that's quite intriguing. This drug works whether you are sensitive to one or to five. And maybe a priori, we would have thought those with more specific IgE sensitivities would have been the better responder, but the drug appears to work across that atopic group once you've defined it by a specific IgE sensitivity. The second study really looked at reversibility. And the question here was, what about responsiveness to omelizumab if you were a high or low airway reversibility? Now, remember, in the IL-5 registration studies, the anti-IL-5 registration studies, all of those studies got enrolled with patients with significant pre-post bronchodilator response. In this study that was done, the Prospero study, looking at real-life pragmatic studies, curiously, omelizumab would work whether you had high or low reversibility, and indeed, exacerbation rates were diminished in both of those groups. And the last study, and this was a resolizumab study that was really a focused on improved patient outcomes. And this is a study that I had co-authored with Mike Wexler from National Jewish. What we found is in this real life pragmatic study that indeed patients who were placed on resolizumab, remember this is pragmatic not in real life, not placebo controlled, clearly had decreased exacerbations and 
actually decrease oral corticosteroid burden. Previous to this, rosalizumab had not done a true OCS burden sparing, but the real-life data, at least as we reported, seemingly demonstrates that rosalizumab using a BMI or weight-based dosing scheme decreased OCS burden and exacerbation. So all told, really exciting pragmatic data, giving us a sense of what providers are using and how these drugs can actually benefit patients. Well, thank you very much, Ray, for this wonderful summary and your insight in the real-world studies. Indeed, I think real-world studies are important to reassure us as clinicians about effectiveness of these agents, but also their long-term safety, even in subpopulations that were not studied in the clinical trials. I think the longer we use these drugs, the more acquainted we become and the more reassuring about their safety and effectiveness. I think the, these are the ones that you mentioned are only a few of several other real-world studies being done now, which are very important for us treating these patients with severe asthma. Oh, great. Thank you very much for having me. I think in this short period of time, I hope we were able to summarize some of the important developments in this field. And we're sort of continuously learning, and it's a pleasure to join you to discuss these. This activity has been provided in partnership with Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation by visiting reachmd.com Prova. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.